are listening to the Decidedly Podcast, the final episode of 2022. Thanks for joining us over this past year as we strive to defeat bad decision-making. This episode is a compilation of 2022's best decision-making ideas pulled from our conversations here on the show. We hope you'll learn a thing or two about yourself, your values, and your decision-making lens as we enter the new year with fresh goals and perspectives. If you enjoy a particular clip of this episode and want to hear the full conversation, see the show notes for timestamps that will direct you to the corresponding episode. We are so appreciative of your support throughout this past year. If you're a Decidedly listener, the greatest gift you can give us is a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Your support helps us reach more people just like you. For more decision-making wisdom, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. That's all for now. Let's get into the best decision-making ideas of 2022. I'm Morgan, your producer, and this is Decidedly. When I think about creating a sexual ethic, I think about what we believe in our value systems, sometimes informed by religion, um, what I know, like sex education, and what I feel, like my intuition. So when we're making our sexual choices, I think it's good to check in with all of those my value system, my knowledge, and my intuition. When I looked at all of those, I realized that my value system was no longer working for me and I needed to take some things out of that basket and put some more things in my knowledge system. And my value system growing up was also telling me not to listen to my intuition. You know, you have sexual feelings, those are actually evil, right? Instead of like, you have sexual feelings? Yeah, that's normal. You're a normal 14-year-old girl. (laughs) Right. Um, And so once I learned how to balance those things out a little bit better, um, my decision-making became more clear. I still use that decision-making to that, that those three systems of my sexual ethic to make decisions about sex. You're weighing your, your knowledge, your value system, and then your intuition. And I would imagine though, a lot of time your end goal would be able to get to a place with any sort of ethical code where those three things line up every time you have to make a decision. Right. right. That would be, it, it would eventually become easy, but I would imagine when you're establishing an ethical code, that's not going to happen every time. Most of the time it's not ever going to happen. Um, and then eventually you work on it. So how do you get to a place when you arrived with new decisions and you're trying to weigh equally your knowledge, intuition, and values? How do you adjust that and go, okay, maybe you made a decision to, to adjust your values. Uh, some people may change your intuition. You could change your knowledge. You could change values. How do you approach that? Or how do you guide people towards approaching that? Full permission to mess it up. Like exploration is a big part of sexuality that we don't encourage. We think we have to get it right every time. We think we have to get it perfect every time. And because of things like porn, a lot of times sex feels like a performance. Like... Mm -hmm. Like we just have to look and and do these certain things or these certain acts. So it it looks a certain way. So giving people the permission to, for it to be an exploration, like, yeah, you're, you're going to mess up. Like you're going to do things outside of your value system, maybe. And that defines your value system better. (laughs) You're going to do things that, um, that you don't know of that are outside of sex education. The one thing that I think that you can't actually change yourself is your intuition. How do people who aren't that analytical, how can they make better decisions in other areas of life where they can't rely on someone who did all the work that you did for them? There are some basic decision-making principles that I think that people can can use 
even when they are not, they, when you are not going to be able to sort of dig into the data, right? If I sort of think about the pieces of, of kind of how I analyze these problems, there's the piece of them that's like, let me read the literature, let me like really like use the statistical training that I have to really understand the nuances of the data. But then there's also a piece that's just like, let me think about a structure of this decision. Let mm -hmm. me think about, you know, what are the trade-offs here? Let me even think about what the decision is before I dive into that. And that piece doesn't mean it requires a particular kind of sort of training your, your brain, but it doesn't require any particular statistical training or anything like that. And I think that's the piece where I try to tell people, that's just a lot of what's in the new book is sort of trying to help people think about, okay, what's the right process for these decisions? How would you think about what are the costs? What are the benefits? How do we, how do we trade, those, um, trade those off? I think the other thing that I often tell people is like sometimes somebody will tell you something and it seems uh, crazy mm -hmm. and it might be crazy. Like, you know, people, when there are like some of these things people will tell you, like if you have even one sip of coffee, like your baby could turn out with, you know, like a, like a weird birthmark. Like that's not true. And you shouldn't like, and it wouldn't, it sort of wouldn't matter what information you get about that. Like that's definitely not true. Sure. And so there's a little bit of a piece here about kind of using your priors and saying, well, is that plausible? Like, is it really likely Does that, that even the make day sense? I turn 35, yeah. I, everything goes to pot? Like are there other biological processes that work like that? No? Okay, well, probably it isn't this one either. And I think that's the sort of key to some of this. What things would you tell somebody to help defeat sort of bad body language interpretation decision-making? All right, so we look at body language twofold, right? Internally and externally. So number one is you have to be aware of your own body language. So you have to be aware of how you come across to people. Are you closed off? Are you open? Uh, do you look insecure? Are you confident? Because that is going to kind of make or break the situation you're in, right? Confidence attracts people. And if you're really going after a promotion, if you're going after um, or having a challenging conversation, you have to have that confidence with you um, to be heard, to be seen, to have the confidence to speak up. So you can gain confidence just by positioning your body, right? And you've seen Amy Cuddy's TED Talk. She talked about power poses. That stuff is real. You can actually position your body and suppress cortisol. And once you do that, you not only look confident, but you feel confident and confidence attracts people, right? So that's number one internally, but externally, it's reading everything. It's breaking through the myths that are out there. Uh, you know, you revert eye contact, you're lying. That stuff doesn't exist. And unless you really know how to accurately analyze body language, Language, not just read it, but analyze all of these indicators you're seeing, that's when you make the determination, yes, I can trust you. No, I cannot trust you. Yes, you're invited into my inner circle. No, you're on the outside and you're going to stay on the outside. What have you found as people are tying their values to decision-making? Because a lot of times people will do them and then, you know, if we ask them what their values are, they can't repeat them. And so yes. it's unlikely that something that you can't even repeat is impacting decision-making. There are a couple of thoughts that come to mind. One is gets back to the uh, automatic responses that we have. I'm sure you, both of you have had guests come on uh, to this podcast and talk extensively about psychological biases, heuristics, and framing effects. And those things that we innately have that impact our decision-making. 
And I think there's a, when it comes to those items, and it's, it's, it's something that we all, all have, we all operate with these different things. And getting back to the driving example, Sean, it, it, there are even studies out there that we're all so overconfident to our driving ability that we all just rated ourselves so much better than, I mean, than we actually are. So right. there are most people, people rate there. themselves as better than average drivers, which can't oh, absolutely be right. <laughs> yeah. But what's really interesting when it comes to aligning values to, to behavior and decision-making, I think you're absolutely right. It takes awareness and it takes awareness of your values to be able to guide that. The other thing that comes into play is the self-talk of individuals. So when it comes to not only do you have to commit those values to memory, but when, when you need them, when you're making a decision, you need to be able to, to call on them when you, when, when you need them most. And that sometimes doesn't happen because of our self-talk. Self-talk traditionally, and has been researched to be that 75 to 80% of our self-talk is negative. So if you start to, or if you're talking poorly to yourself, the odds are of you stepping back from that moment and asking yourself, Ryan, reflect on your values, is the, the probability of that happening is very low. So you, there are things that we have to be able to, to take into account. And one of them, because it's just so ubiquitous in our lives, especially now in a pandemic, is that we need to be aware of our stress levels. And it's not, it's not to be uh, aware to the point where we're trying to eliminate stress because eliminating stress is something that is is nearly impossible and there are also studies out there that suggest that if you are not in a if you're not operating in a at least somewhat stressed uh environment your performance is going to go down so you don't want to be wait say that again so there are there are studies out there that when it comes to uh performing at your best Mm -hmm. you there needs to be a certain level of good stress that's called eustress when in your body because their cortisol the stress hormone uh is its makeup is very similar to that of adrenaline and adrenaline is very commonly known if you are experiencing a car accident or you're running from a bear adrenaline's going to kick in and it's going to just seep into your body and it's going to commit resources to all of your mm -hmm. uh, the important organs and let you go Similarly, with stress, stress is a slower burn. So with cortisol, it actually is a, a, like a slight drip. And the more that you have, the different your body is going to perform at. So as you, it's similar to working out. So as you stress your body, your body's going to respond to that stress and allow you to uh, bulk up or, or slim down, depending on, on where, which way you're going. Sure. But as you get to that level of where you have too much stress, that's where it starts to impact your performance. And you want to come to come back, you have to dial it back. And maybe there are certain activities from a renewal perspective to bring your, yourself back to uh, a stress level that is more appropriate to your work environment. You know, Sean and I obviously think decision-making can be so broadly applied, like skills that we develop around decision-making can be applied in every aspect of our life, whether it's our careers, our marriages, our friendships, our hobbies, anything. If we're better at decision-making, we're better at everything. And I think that that's probably true to a large extent when it comes to negotiations. You know, we, we even negotiate with ourselves sometimes. 
but I'm curious to hear from you what, as a negotiator, how do you defeat bad decision making during the negotiation process? So I would say an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And so when I'm going into any type of negotiation, I'm preparing, I'm doing my homework is who am I dealing with? What are the circumstances that I'm dealing with? You know, is there a certain industry I need to learn a little bit more about or a customer or a client I need to learn more about? So I understand what is valuable to those individuals because people will say, wow, you're so good at thinking on your feet. And it's because I spent way more time preparing in advance so I could think on my feet and I can make those quick decisions because I've already thought it through five different ways before the conversation even started. I'm thinking, about, well, if things go this way and if they respond this way, then I'm going to do this approach. If they respond a different way, then I'm going to use that approach. So I spend a lot of time when I'm working with corporate clients, we will sit in a, in a boardroom for hours or even in a Zoom room for hours talking about how could things go on the other side? Tell me a little bit more about the individuals that you deal with. Tell me a little bit more about their objectives and what it is that the challenges that they're facing. So we have that massive big picture and then we can go, okay, based on what I know, here's how I think this is going to play out. And if it plays out differently, it's kind of like, um, you know, if you were to punch something into Google Maps, right, and it's going to give you multiple routes to get to the same destination. If there's an obstacle in one, if there's too much traffic in another one, if a road closure happens, you got another way to get there without going, oh, no, what do I do now? And getting stuck in traffic forever. The same can happen as we make our decisions. If you prepare and you know those routes in advance and those potential, you know, openings for yourself, then it's much easier to get to your final destination. You may have to take the scenic route once in a while. You may have to, you, you might be able to be the most efficient sometimes, but you need to understand what does the landscape look like? before you can just start weaving your way through traffic and not knowing where you're going. What advice do you give to people to defeat bad decision-making? Well, so the big thing I, I try to tell everybody is to seek out information. So, you know, we're overrun by information. There's thousands of people on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and LinkedIn trying to push information to us. And it's almost as if we have all of that information out there, but we still don't have the right information. So, you know, Kahneman and others will call that noise. It's all that noise in the environment. You're trying to figure out who's the person I'm really supposed to believe, who is the person I, I trust. And, you know, but I, I tell people to seek out high quality input and that input has to be beyond the level of a salesperson. So I never trust what a sale, if, I'm, if you're trying to sell me insurance, I'm, I'm gonna listen to you, I'm gonna, I'm gonna write things down, but I'm gonna go back and do my homework. And so, you know, I really say we have to seek out information and seek out choices. And choices is the big thing, our alternatives, because the people that are successful have more than one alternative. And when we look at people over uh, their lifetime, we see why possibly they weren't as successful, why they weren't as wealthy or healthy. A lot of times comes down to they thought they were pinned into one alternative. And this is it. This is the path I got to choose because of my upbringing, because of my background, my education. I didn't have a choice. I did this. And when we're forced into a box, that's the worst thing from a decision outcome and a decision quality perspective. So I always say seek out alternatives, seek out other information and try to process it, at least spend a few minutes contemplating it before you do something. You know, what, I, what we're really interested in is how individuals can use an understanding of these cognitive biases and decision-making principles, frameworks to make better decisions in their own lives. 
And now that mm-hmm. companies are understanding that and they're, they're spending more time investing in how to, you know, I don't, I don't want to say exploit, but, but understand our own individual decision-making habits. Um, how can, how can we as individuals use that knowledge knowing, Hey, this is what companies are doing. How can we use that to better our own lives? Yeah, I I think that's a great question. I mean, it's like a lot of things. Um, I think education is a big part of it. So on, so on my site, choice hacking, I do talk a lot about all of these different principles and the way that kind of businesses can use them. But there is a flip side to that. And I, I do write a little bit about that as well. It's going to start to become more and more what I write about. Um, because what I found is, you know, I wrote all this stuff about, you know, this is how business might fool you by using like anchoring on a price tag. And you know, oh, it used to be $100 and now it's $20. And what I found was, yes, I was getting like marketers who were looking at that and saying like, oh, that's interesting. Oh, maybe I should apply that. But I was getting, I guess, for lack of a better term, like normal people who would see these articles and go like, oh, my God. Every time I go into, you know, TJ Maxx or Marshalls, I look at that tag and I feel like mm. I have to buy it. It's 80% off. But now I know, well, yeah, maybe it's 80% off and, you know, maybe it's not. Like maybe that's something that I can use to kind of, I guess, monitor, control my own behavior or just be aware of the fact that I'm a little bit like the like emotionally aroused, for lack of a better term, right? This is a scientific term. I'm I'm upset. This this thing is making me upset, or this thing is making me feel like I'm going to miss out. And just knowing, you know, that those principles exist, and being able to kind of monitor your own sort of reactions to things, and say like, oh, well, now I know that a lot of decision making is emotional. So when I get emotional, I should probably not make any big decisions. Yeah, you know, I I shouldn't I shouldn't be making a decision from a place that isn't. I mean, and obviously we can't do this every decision we make, right? If we had to like. If you're getting emotional about what socks to pick in the morning, you know, and had to go through like a list of pros and cons of what outfit, you would never make it out the door. But with important decisions, things like, you know, spending money or buying a house or whatever it might be, like being aware of these cognitive biases is is really helpful. And taking the time to kind of de-bias your decision making is helpful as well. I'm sure there were some extraordinarily challenging times that that other combat pilots weren't facing. Yeah, I don't I didn't have like a formal framework, you know, of like this is how I'm going to make this decision and I'm going to be very analytical about it. Um, I often do that for different things uh, that, you know, a process we've learned in the military called course of action analysis. Um, I use that a lot. in uh, decisions and encouraging others in decisions where you identify what attributes or what values um, matter, and then you weight whether any of them are of higher uh, value than the others. And then you assess each of your courses of action against those values and give them a number. And, uh, you know, there's a grading system that I've since learned on that. And so you can at least look with some objectivity. I've actually helped um, my goddaughter think about like getting into, you know, choosing a college, you know, based on this. And I sure wish like I didn't have anything like that. Okay. And I just went through this with my niece, who's a junior in high school, like where we identified, all right, what attributes do we care about? We care about the academic programs. We care about the cost. We care about geography. We care about, you know, do we care about athletics? Do we care about 
any sort of elements of like culture or community there. So we're, we're, met, we're literally listing them down and then we're grading them all in a very objective way. Because sometimes, you know, you're, what you feel may win out actually doesn't when you line them up against the things that you say you value. It's a really good process. Uh, but I will also say, I mean, I didn't use that a lot in my young decision making. Uh, um, I feel like I had the, I am, I, I can be very analytical. So I had kind of the, um, the ingredients of that and just trying to make good decisions as objective as possible. But, you know, you also need to trust your gut at times too. I think about some other decisions I had, if you were to just look at objectively, uh, even just like, I'm going to go be a fighter pilot. If that was the you know decision when I was a cadet, yeah. it, it would have come out with the lowest value option, right? It would have had the lowest number. Don't do that. That is the least likelihood <laughs> to um, succeed. So there is this element as I'm, you know, as I grow in my wisdom and experiences, and I feel like I'm in an exponential growth mindset, which is really important for everybody in your decision-making process. Have a growth mindset. There's a quote, I can't remember who it was who said, if you're not embarrassed by who you were a year ago, you're not grown enough. So having a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. And so, you know, I think back like trusting your gut or trusting your, uh, what you believe is a calling. Um, sometimes you just need to follow that. Like, don't, don't try to overanalyze it. Don't pull out that legal paper and start, you know, doing the pluses and minuses or whatever. Like if you really feel like there's a burning calling inside you or your gut is telling you to do something, you know, run it by some people for sure. But ultimately you got to look yourself in the mirror and say, I need to go. Like I need, I need to do this and this is the right thing to do, even if I don't prevail, but I need to do it. So, I mean, those are just some, some of the things to think about. Sometimes I make analytical decisions. Sometimes I throw the paper out and uh, you got to go with your gut and your calling. If you do an analysis of what your behavior is that you're trying to change, there are always ways that you can identify friction. So people who have the worst nail-biting habit and they just can't control it, what if they wore gloves? Gloves are something that makes it so you have to take the gloves off to bite your nail. I mean, it's even possible to control cell phone use. And cell phones are something that is a habit that a lot of people want to control. If you just take it and turn it off after you use it each time, that small amount of friction of effort, it doesn't have to be a lot, just a small amount. If you can make that your habit, just repeatedly turn it off when you're done using it. If you can just put it in a pocket somewhere when you're done so it's not so readily accessible, doesn't sound like much friction. And it doesn't stop you from using it if you have to. But what it does is it just makes it a little bit less likely. So you gain a little bit of control over the behavior. I mean, there's, there's definitely something to be said about where these goals and ideals were created. I've had Many people who sit down and say, okay, I, you know, decided when I was a teenager that I was going to go get my bachelor's and then I was going to get a graduate degree and I was going to get married somewhere within there and I needed to have a child by the time I was 29 and then my dream job is this by 31. And there are a lot of people that plot their course and they plot their course when they're very young 
and they hold to it very rigidly. They keep their head down in life yeah. and they just plug through and all of a sudden they pop up when they've achieved all the things they've wanted and they think, how did I get here? And why did I get here? Is Do I even like this life? And, and so there's something to be said about creating some space to understand why do I do what I do and allow ourselves to be curious about that. And there are some things that inevitably we're going to want to keep and there's going to be some things that we want to readjust and to change. And there's something to be said about as we are moving through life and aging, do we allow our goals to mature with us? Do we allow our relationships to mature with us? Are we forcing ourselves to wear the same pair of pants that we purchased as a ninth grader? Well, they don't fit so well when we're 40. Yeah. So, you know, even creating space to reevaluate goals and what's important and priorities is so crucial. And also, why? Why, did, why were those things so important to us? And what do they say about who we are? And there's something to be said about detaching who we are and our worth from the things that we do and achieve. And it's very challenging to do, especially if our worth is so dependent on our achievements. There's a lot of different trends that you can make decisions. You can make bad decisions, but making no decision is, is, is worse than making a bad decision, in my mind. Now, I think the public probably thinks differently. They want to cancel everyone that uh, you know, makes a bad decision, but that is what it is. <laughs> No, you're totally right. <laughs> we're, yeah. we're in the minority in the belief, it placing a premium on speed. Well, you know, I mean, I, I think there are a lot of people who who feel like um, they want to avoid making a bad decision without recognizing that that no decision is in fact a decision. It's a decision not to act, and while they're not acting, the world's moving past them. And I, I think it's particularly challenging for um, groups and committees. And, and you know, you talked about I, I was. Uh, had a discussion this past week. I sold a business a couple of years ago and uh, was doing some coaching with them afterwards. And we realized that there was some real friction in the decision-making. And so it was curious to me. And what I had observed was, and I made this comment to them, I, I said, it looks like you guys have conflicting values, you know, so that one of the, there were four owners and I said, you know, you guys are not on the same page what we finally realized was that they were having difficulty making decisions because the values that I had had and, and the vision that I had written for the company, they were still operating on, but they weren't aligned with those values and vision. It didn't make them bad. They were just different. And so they were making decisions based on the internal values that they had not cleared with each other. And so they had a different set of values among them. Uh, hadn't agreed on the new values and everybody was still sort of thinking they should have been making decisions based on the values that I had had, or I, I had established for the company, you know, some 15 years prior. My mind, my aware, <laughs> my awareness <laughs> was around how to focus. And I thought the answer would be to block out the things that were distracting me. That would seem to be the logical step is that if I want to focus on A, I should block out B. I should block out all these distractions. And you were seeming to say that that's not the way to go. Can we go back to you understanding awareness in the mind, that the mind doesn't move, that awareness moves within the mind? And then go back mm -hmm. also to what you just said. If I want to focus on A, I have to block out B. If I'm blocking out B, where's my awareness going? Right. To B. Right. It's, it's around B. 
Right. Yes. And so yeah. when athletes say, you know, I'm on the court, a free throw, I have to block out everything. So now I'm blocking out what the opposition team is saying to me. I'm blocking out the cheerleaders. I'm blocking out the fans. I'm blocking out somebody else screaming at me. My awareness is going to all those things as opposed to the net where I need to get the ball in. That's a, it's a, you know, we, I, we say things, right? We just say things because that becomes a habit and everybody just says it without even thinking about it. We spoke to Jeremy Pointsnow a few weeks back, who's a, yeah. a world championship blind golfer. And he made the comment to me that when he, he'll go up and he'll have, he has to have somebody direct him where to, where to hit the ball. And many times they will, they will tell him, Hey, watch out because there's a, there's a hazard on the left. And he'll always turn to them and say, I can't see the hazard on the left. And you just introduced that into my, you know, <laughs> into the equation. What do you need to know that you don't know? Let's get that information first. What is yeah. the likelihood that, that if would you- be the out of the gate first part of the process is what do you need to know that you don't know? <laughs> It depends. It totally depends because some people come to me and they have two job offers and they really don't know which one to choose. And some come to me and say, I don't want to know. I don't know what to do with my life. I could go any direction. That's more open-ended, right? So if it's a a binary choice, I would think the framework probably works a little better. It's more defined anyway. It is. It is. It's it's much more constrained. But but that question, what do you need to know that you don't know is it's relevant no matter what. It's just when does it show up? Like, when does it come up in the conversation? It's always part of the process. Then. I think, I think it has to be, we always have to ask ourselves Let's, that. Walk, walk me through the, okay. So I, I come to you and I say, all right, I I'm really wrestling with, you know, go down path A, path B. Right. What, you, how are you going to walk me through the process around that decision? So I adopt kind of a loose adoption of um, the expected utility model, which is kind of a, just a basic model of rational choice that's been used in economics and you know learned it in sociology as well but it's just really a combination of what are the potential options what are certain conditions or what ifs that could happen um and then what are some outcomes that it could occur and so like one great example is i want to go for a walk should i carry an umbrella yes i could no i might i i i would or no i would not but there's this condition, there's this what if that's kind of a wild card. Is it going to rain? I don't know. So I'll, I'll walk through clients through the kind of what ifs. Should I stay with my husband or not? He's going to therapy. He could change. So that's kind of a wild card. What if he changes? What if I divorce him and he actually turns into the perfect man? Then what? So I walk through that stuff. And then it's the outcomes, the then what's. Yeah. And then you put values on them. And that's, things, that's that's really the most important thing, not the most important thing, but a very important thing that people don't do enough of is they don't put numbers on things like, um, or values. It doesn't even have to be numbers, but my husband could go to therapy and he could turn into the perfect man. Okay, he could, but what's the chance? What are the likelihood? What is the likelihood of that? And we don't often ask ourselves about, well, what are the chances of that? I could take this job. I could make it anything I wanted. Yeah, but what are the chances of that? 20%, 40%, 80%? You can actually, and then you can actually think about, well, what do I need to know in order to know that number? And it's the same thing with outcomes. So say I stay with my husband. He doesn't turn out to be the perfect guy. I'm here, I'm with him for another five years and he's still still an, an asshole or whatever. 
the reason, right? right. Um, what on a scale of zero to ten is that a two? As in, like, really, really bad? Is that kind of a six? Like, yeah, I could live with that. Like, let's put a number on it. Um, and then you just kind of, I just, you just do the math, the chance times the outcome. And that's kind so of- So it seems like if, if you're going through that sort of framework of looking mm-hmm. at the probability outcomes, you would need to then also weigh the importance, right? This has a 20% chance of happening, but it's my number one thing. Right, right. right. This is the idea of touching a hot stove, all right, and immediately you pull your hand away, okay? We don't have to think about pulling our hand away. Our, our brain immediately says threat, pull your hand away. It doesn't wait for our logical conscious mind, okay? But, but in environments of high stress, right, our arousal is going to go up, and automatically, as we start to get more stressed and more anxious, our conscious mind is start to go, go offline. And so what we have to start understanding how to do is bringing our anxiety levels down, bringing that frontal lobe back online because it's only through our frontal lobe and our conscious mind that we can actually start decision-making and processing our environment. Um, We can do that several ways. You can do that. There's, there's, there's visual tools you can use to bring down your stress and anxiety. There's, there's um, breathing techniques you can do. Uh, Once you bring that autonomic arousal back down, you then begin to ask questions about your environment that allow you to help start helping step through it. Okay. First question automatic is, what about this do I understand? <laughs> that list might be small, yeah. right? It might be like one or two things. <laughs> Again, what sure. you're doing is you're picking focus points, all right? And then you say, okay, from that list, what do I focus on in this moment? This is how I, I, I kind of almost call this uh, adjusting your horizons, right? So in other words, you're, you're picking a focus point that's meaningful to you and you're moving to that. And then what's happening is as soon as you hit that, you're generating a, a reward system in your brain. You get a dopamine reward for that which allows you to come back and say, okay, what's my next horizon? Let me give you an example uh, from SEAL training. Okay, SEAL training, again, like I said, you run around for hours and hours with boats on your head and on the beaches of Coronado, uh, especially during Hell Week in the middle of the night. I can remember during Hell Week at one point, we're we're running on the beach with our boats on our head. We've been doing it for hours, right? And I don't know what god-awful time it was. We hadn't slept. And we're running along a, a, a sand berm just along the beach. And I remember being miserable, and I said to myself, oh, man, okay, you know what? I'm just gonna focus on the end of this berm getting to the end of the berm. And that's what I did. I just focused and I got to the end of the berm. What I did without knowing it is I just picked a horizon, all right? And I moved, and as soon as I got to the end of that berm, I was like, oh, cool, okay. And I gave myself, unbeknownst to me, of course, until I studied the neuroscience later on, I gave myself a dopamine reward, which which allowed me to pick a new horizon. Knowing yourself um, lets you kind of weed out all the good advice gone bad. That's what David Colby and I call it, good advice gone bad. It's good advice on the surface about ways you should make decisions on your career or how you should get things done or how to be productive. There is tons of advice, but it only works for some people or it just goes too far. So you know that um, anything worth doing is worth doing well. Mm -hmm. That is just crap. I cannot believe we teach our kids that. It is there's lots of stuff you got to get done every day that's not worth your best effort. So it just has to get checked off. And then there's other things that are worth, you know, some of your best efforts and more mental energy and all of that. And so what's, I think it's what's the same worth, thing with What's worth about effort? What's worth about effort? Um, anything that is a good fit for your mental energy, which I know we so, can talk about. Okay. And what are the priorities right now? So there's some things that either somebody else should be doing or you just need to get done. You know it's going to be stressful for you because it's not natural to you. So 
just going to do it quickly. I'm going to get it done. And then there's things where the end result matters a ton and you got to decide, okay, I'm really going to give this better effort, but that means saying no to a bunch of stuff Mm. because we have this mental energy available to us. It's finite. So you cannot use it up on something that's kind of not a great use for your effort. I call it like, um, you know, best and highest use of your strengths. You just made a great decision to listen to this episode of Decidedly. Make another great decision and leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate your support. It helps others find our community and defeat bad decision-making in their own lives. For more daily decision-making insights, check us out at decidedlypodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Thanks again for listening. I'm Sanger Smith, and this is Decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.